Okay, Rachel, it's a new year. 2024 has just begun, so it's very natural for all of us to be looking to the year ahead. For you, as you look to the year ahead, how is the economy doing? What foot are we starting on? Well, the economy of 2023 is actually going to tell us a lot about the economy of 2024. And improbably, remarkably, somehow, it's a much better picture than just about anyone could have expected going into the new year last year or even just a couple of months ago. Rachel Siegel reports on the economy for The Post. She's been on the show before to talk about out-of-control inflation and fears of a coming recession. Now, Rachel has some good news. If you look at a bunch of different indicators, the economy looks strong. It's inflation, it's the job market, it's overall growth, and it's the way people are spending. This whole picture put together makes the economy look really strong on paper and much stronger than anyone could have expected. And yet many Americans aren't feeling that way about the economy. Some people are even calling this moment a vibe session, that the economic vibes we have are just off. And that could signal trouble for President Biden in an election year. It doesn't always feel like the economy is doing really great when you are buying a sandwich and it costs more than you expected it to, or you're paying your rent and it's just really taking a large slice out of your budget. That has all made it so that even though the economy is doing really great, there's a pretty wide disconnect between what people would tell you about how they experience the economy. The problem then for the White House is that they have to figure out this message that goes, no, the economy really is doing well, let me explain it to you, without saying something like, you just don't realize that it's doing really well, or actually we really are helping you and you just don't understand it. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Tuesday, January 2nd. Today, the disconnect between the data and our feelings about the economy. Rachel breaks down how we avoided a recession in 2023, what to expect in the coming year, and what this all means for a president trying to run on his economic record. Rachel, I know that you've been covering the government's efforts to fight inflation for several months now, and I think it's important to unpack that to understand how we got to this point and what the year ahead could be like. And a lot of people had expected that these interventions that the government was doing would would spark or cause or spur a recession. But can you break down for us why that is? Why does fighting inflation often mean a recession? Sure. So the Econ 101 lesson would go something like this. Coming out of the pandemic, the economy was actually overheated in a lot of ways. There was this really strong mismatch between all the stuff that people wanted to buy and the supply chains and the factories and the labor shortages that made it really hard to meet that demand. Okay, so you've got this mismatch between supply and demand. That's Big lesson mess. number one. Big mess. That causes inflation. When you are trying to buy a new couch for your apartment that you've been spending quite a bit of time in, and the factory can't make that couch as fast as you would want it, you're going to see that price spike because maybe if you pay a little bit more for it, you'll get it sooner. There's not enough couches to go around. Prices go up. Oh, this is why this happened to me. <laughs> okay, there you go. You and many, many, many other people. Yeah. In order to try and get prices under control to stop that spiral from continuing, 
there is really one main lever. That is interest rates. The main government entity that can move interest rates up or down is the Federal Reserve. Ultimately, it's the Federal Reserve's job to figure out the right level where interest rates can go up to a certain level, they can go down to a certain level to try and keep prices in check. So over the past couple of years, when you have prices just spiking way out of control for all sorts of things, couches, houses, cars, the Federal Reserve's job was to ramp interest rates up really, really, really high. And when they do that really, really, really quickly, pretty much all models would tell you that that causes a recession. When you have to slam on the brakes so hard, it doesn't bring the economy down to a sort of gentle slowing. It really can cause the economy to crash with a bit of a thud. I see. So in an effort to slow down these rising prices and this inflation, you hit the brakes. But the brakes, it's not a gentle, like, rolling stop. It's like a slammed brake, pull the parking brake, and then it slows down so much that it can spark a recession. Exactly. Which often includes layoffs, right? That yes. sort of thing. Um but that's not what happened here, right? How did the Fed and the White House avoid a recession? It's a remarkable story and one that will probably be studied for many, many years because it went against just about everything that econ and history would teach us. Part of that story did happen. The Fed did get interest rates really, really high. With today's action, we've raised our policy rate by five and a quarter percentage points since early last year. Here's Jerome Powell. He's the head of the Federal Reserve. We have been seeing the effects of our policy tightening on demand in the most interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy. They sprinted to hike borrowing costs to make it more expensive for people to get a mortgage, mm -hmm. for people to get an auto loan. But somehow the economy continued chugging along. There were lots of surprises in how the economy and individual businesses and individual households were able to absorb it instead of sort of feeling this shock or feeling like the car had suddenly ground to a halt in the middle of the street. People were able to say, OK, actually, I think I can make this work. Maybe I can buy that house or maybe I do have a little bit of wiggle room to still buy that car. And maybe I don't need a new couch right now, but if I decide to get one later, I'll be able to swing that, too. And it just made it so that even as the Fed was rushing to slow the economy down using this very powerful tool, the economy was really able to take it. But, but digging into that a little bit more, do we know why that was happening? I mean, is part of it a bit of a mystery? Part of it is definitely a mystery that could be answered with a bit more hindsight. But there are also some lessons that we already know right now. People actually had money coming out of the pandemic. As of yesterday, <clears throat> more than 100 million payments of $1,400 have gone into people's bank accounts. That's real money in people's pockets, bringing relief instantly almost. And millions more will be getting their money very soon. The stimulus checks and the savings that people sat on in the really early days of the pandemic made it so that later on they could take a little bit more of a shock. They were able to keep spending even when inflation was high, even when interest rates were high. They were able to take that on in a way that I don't think policymakers expected. The thinking was high interest rates, people are going to stop spending. They have no choice. That really didn't happen. At the same time, you had businesses that were still really eager to hire people that were still saying, you know what, I think I have enough demand to 
open up another branch of my store or train more employees for the busy holiday season. When you're hiring people, that means that those people have more money to spend. And it really just keeps going from there. Yeah. And I wonder part of it, too, is coming out of the pandemic, people felt new feelings that they hadn't felt before. And we're thinking, you know what? I do want to buy this thing. I do want to enjoy my life. I'm not going to hold back. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to freak out. Because in those beginning days, it was a big freak out, yep. right? A big collective freak out about the unknown. But it almost feels like in many ways coming out of the pandemic, people are just fed up. And Yeah. I mean, there were so many waves of what we called revenge spending, right? And, and, and economists would say, OK, this is going to be the last wave. People are going to take that first vacation that they've been holding out for for years and then they're going to slow down. People are going to buy that house, then they're going to slow down. People are going to go to Taylor Swift, and then they're going to slow down. We just saw a really busy holiday season where people bought gifts and went on vacation and went out to eat. And I think anyone who thinks that that was going to stop at the new year hasn't really learned anything from the last couple of years. So does this mean recession's off, no worries, full steam ahead? Well, there there is a very official small group of people that are the ones to officially declare a recession or not. I am not part of that uh, <laughs> official panel. But I mean, my colleagues and I have been writing for a very long time about the recession that was supposed to come. And there is no way to look at the economy that we have now and either see a recession already with us or to have much expectation that these things are abruptly about to change, that layoffs are about to start en masse, that people are going to stop spending on the things that they want to put together. That means that the recession that we've been fearing for so long probably isn't happening. I mean, that sounds great. At the same time, what about inflation? Could prices still rise or are wages keeping pace with that? Part of the reason people are hesitant to say that we officially have cleared any sort of sign of a recession is because the Fed knows its job is not fully done yet. Here's Powell again when he had this to say about the strength of the economy at a recent press conference. Inflation has eased from its highs, and this has come without a significant increase in unemployment. That's very good news. But inflation is still too high. Ongoing progress in bringing it down is not assured. And the path forward is uncertain. They've made a lot of progress getting inflation down, but they aren't all the way to their goal. And until they get there, they're really going to be hesitant to say that they're totally in the clear and that they've managed to pull this off. And then what's the story with wages? Have they kept up with the rate of inflation? So there's a good sign there, too. Wages have finally been able to outpace inflation Mm -hmm. as inflation has eased. That gives people more buying power. But there again, there's this rub between what things still cost, even if inflation is easing. It doesn't mean that the prices themselves are going down. They aren't going up as rapidly. Maybe every time you go to the grocery mm-hmm. store, you're not seeing your bill go up by $10, $20, $30. But the ultimate sticker price is still a bit of a sting. And so it might not feel like your paycheck is really going very far. Yeah, I shouldn't hold my breath that, oh, these high these high prices will ever come down. I mean, right. that's where they are. That's mm-hmm. where they'll be. And maybe they won't rise as rapidly. Right. Um, let's also talk about jobs for a moment, because I know the unemployment rate is often a marker that people use and point to and talk about and brag about if they're a politician <laughs> or in the White House as a as a way to measure how strong the economy is. So how did we end 2023 when it comes to the unemployment rate? And what does that tell you about what 2024 could look like? Mm-hmm. The unemployment rate stayed remarkably strong through the entire year. There were a couple of months where we just saw businesses adding employees like gangbusters. There would be expectations for a number, say, in the 200,000 range, and then the report would land and it would be in the 500,000 range. And that really kept up. We, we are not seeing 
blockbuster numbers every single month necessarily, but we have seen enough enthusiasm in the labor market to keep the unemployment rate very, very low. And when you have a low unemployment rate, that gives people leverage with their employers. It helps them negotiate for higher salaries. It helps them seek out better jobs if that's something that they want. And again, that's a huge marker of an economy to stay strong. Okay, so overall, the economy seems like it's doing pretty great. But after the break, we're going to talk about why it doesn't always feel that way. We'll be right back. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Our big number is one. One episode per day, one story per episode, one really deep dive. At a time when the world is more complex than ever, On Point's daily dedicated conversation takes the time to make the world more intelligible. From the state of democracy to AI to the wonders of the natural world. That's On Point from WBUR, one podcast we think you should subscribe to. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So, Rachel, I want to ask you now about whether Americans' feelings about the economy match the reality of the economy. So, first of all, how do we know how Americans feel about the economy? What are you looking Mm -hmm. at? What is your reporting showing you? Well, there are a couple of ways to get at that. First, there are surveys, right? There are very closely kept, rigorous surveys and polls of consumer confidence and consumer spending that tap into how people are feeling. And and those are helpful to look at. They often bend with high gas prices or maybe if there's something else going on in the world that can inform what those surveys will tell us. So that's one thing. The other part is just actually talking to businesses and talking to Mm. people or talking to people in our own lives about how they feel the economy day in and day out. Maybe that is their regular mortgage payment. Maybe it's how much it costs to fill up their tank of gas. I was with a friend the other night at a sort of pole-in-the-wall sandwich shop, and she said, Rach, why does this sandwich cost $20 when <laughs> the last time we had been there a few years before, it was probably something closer to 12 or 14 And, you know, she still bought the sandwich. It didn't right. necessarily change her behavior. But she didn't feel good about but it. But she didn't feel good about it. Right. And it caused this sort of extra question and a little bit of a, like, 
ugh, why does this cost $20? Yeah, I mean, I really relate to that because even as I heard you describe all the ways in aggregate big picture the economy is doing great, when you brought up the sandwich example, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, yeah, how come when I get drip coffee now, Mm -hmm. like a regular cup of coffee, it's like $4? Mm -hmm. When did this happen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So what do these indicators tell us about how people feel about the economy? Let's put aside how that economy is actually doing. Mm -hmm. How are they feeling? Well, people are generally feeling quite sour. They don't feel good about the economy. They don't feel like the whiplash of the last couple of years has settled. They don't feel like they have a handle on prices staying stable. I think there's this sense of trepidation or even expectation that things will continue to zig and zag and that maybe finally once they get used to a certain grocery bill, it's going to change again and their eggs are going to go back up and there's going to be a shortage of this. I think there's this very cumulative toll that shapes the way people feel about the economy, and then they go buy a sandwich and they feel it even more. The added question that I think is most interesting is why that hasn't really changed their behavior. You would think that Mm. if people are really so sour about how much it costs to book a couple of rooms for a night at a hotel or to go out to a nice dinner, that maybe they wouldn't do that. Maybe they would change their behavior to get around these changes in the economy. But we're not seeing that. We're not seeing the domino that would affect the economy, right? If people stopped going out to eat, if people stopped going on vacation, that would spiral into other economic consequences. But we're not really seeing that added dimension yet. Yeah, I wonder how much of that is, well, I'm not going to change my behavior, but I'm going to change how I feel about Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. I feel very differently about my behavior. Like I am going to still spend, but Mm -hmm. I'm mad about it. But I'm mad about it. And I think the additional layer that can then be piled onto that is, am I going to vote differently? Mm. Am I going to draw a very straight line between how the economy makes me feel, and how I'm going to vote in November. So let's talk about that, because this is an election year, and the economy is usually, if not the biggest, you know, one of the biggest issues that any politician wants to campaign on. Um, There are a lot of reasons why pollsters will say, you know, people really care about the economy. So what does this all mean for President Biden? Because in the first half of the show, you broke down all the ways in which the economy is actually doing really great and Mm -hmm. the ways, you know, the White House could be bragging. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there are other indicators that tell us that people aren't having high consumer confidence in spending. So can you unpack a little bit the challenge before President Biden? Yeah, I, I think it's a big one. We're now less than a year before the election. Still plenty of time to go, but these are a lot of the very salient questions that political consultants and strategists and, you know, the campaigns themselves are having to grapple with. Because, as you said, it is going to be a major issue going into November or even for the primaries when it comes to the Republican candidates. From COVID on, um, they they put too much money into the economy. Mm-hmm. When you start doing something like that, it's about 18 to 20 months you are going to see inflation. The Fed did a terrible job when they allowed all of that money to go through. You saw the Treasury bond rates go up. That affected mortgage rates, that affected automobile rates, that affected insurance rates. And so now we have a high interest rate. And I think there are a few things at play. The White House has a lot to take credit for here, too. We spent some time talking about the Federal Reserve and the tools at its disposal. The White House has an ability to pinpoint very specific parts of the economy and often parts that people feel most viscerally. They were able to try and put out more gas supply when gas prices were really, really high. Remember, they were over $5 a couple of summers Mm -hmm. ago. The White House was able to say, "Okay, we're going to target that and get prices down for people. I know gas prices are painful. I get it. My plan's going to help ease that pain today and safeguard again against tomorrow. I'm open to ideas to strengthen the plan, but I will not be put off 
and put it on hold. It's time to deliver true long-term energy independence in America once and for all. And I'm going to continue to use every tool at my disposal to protect you from Putin's price hike. The White House has efforts to get health care costs down. They're able to sort of pinpoint specific areas that would be huge talking points for them and really big points to celebrate. At the same time, as you said, it's a hard message to communicate when you want someone to vote for you to say, wait, no, your situation is actually a lot better. And maybe you're even better off than you were before the pandemic because of those stimulus checks that we sent you. You just don't realize it. You just don't feel it. It's a really tricky political messaging campaign. And also, this stuff is really wonky, right? Like, right. you don't want to go out and explain, we pull out some you know, 9.1% <laughs> inflation dynamics versus 32 It's just like, you know, you want something that matches the emotion that people are feeling. And I think it'll be interesting to see how those messages come together. Yeah, I mean, is a big part of this about media messaging and narrative, how to thread that needle, how to put forward a different narrative that resonates with people? I mean, I think that's where the political machine of this all comes in. Mm. I, I mainly cover the Fed, which is extremely insulated from election cycles and political pressure. They don't have to get reelected. This is sort of the you know, political machine that ramps up the closer we get to November, not just on the White House side, but among Republicans too. Republicans would need to put forward, I guess, their own plan to get inflation down to lower levels. They've been very critical of a lot of the steps that made it so that the economy is as healthy as it is today. There's both this element of, okay, well, what's the policy that you're putting forward, Mm -hmm. but also what's the story that you're trying to tell about the economy to get people to vote for you? Yeah, it's kind of a hard argument to say things could be way worse and they're (laughs) actually better than you feel like they are. It's like you're talking down to people. Exactly, exactly. So stepping back, Rachel, looking at this big dynamic that we've talked about, that the economy looking ahead to 2024 actually feels really good or looks really good rather, but it feels differently for some people. I mean, how strange is this dynamic to you? Have you seen anything like this before? And what are you going to be paying attention to Mm -hmm. in the next 12 months? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would file this under the increasingly long list of things that we have never seen before. Mm. And I think in the same way that people expected spending to stop, that people would go on that last vacation, splurge on that last concert, and then they'll calm down. I think there's been a sense of, well, eventually there has to be some narrowing of this gap. People's behavior has to change if they really are so unhappy. That is something a lot of people are keeping a very close eye on and another thing that just hasn't come to be yet. Another thing I'm especially curious about going into this new year is how people connect economic policies that were either passed by this White House or by Congress to their own lives Mm -hmm. and whether they give credit back in return. If if there's a way to say, well, this economy in this small town actually got a huge lift from Biden's infrastructure spending, and maybe it's in a sort of conservative place. Do the people there think they're better off and do they credit President Biden as a result? I think that there are a lot of ways that the economy and politics and actual policy overlap in a way that'll be really interesting for the rest of the year. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. I will offer you a $4 cup of coffee. Let's go get coffee right now. (laughs) It'll it'll feel great to us both, I'm sure. Rachel Siegel covers the economy for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnick with help from Emma Talkoff. It was mixed by Renny Svernovsky and edited by Maggie Penman. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. 
It's a great way to back the work we do. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.